Check one, check one, two, three. Hey everybody, it's Michael Helms, also known as Michael the Sound Guy, and this is the Location Sound Podcast. You know, each episode we talk with location sound mixers, boom ops, and other industry pros about the various aspects of recording sound on location, whether it's for feature and independent films, TV commercials, interviews, any time where dialogue from actors is recorded. I started my career in the recording studios in New York City with some of the big artists back in the day, and later on projects for networks like HBO, Sci-Fi Channel, and the Cartoon Network. As time went by, I got out of the studio and began working in production sound. Whether you're a seasoned veteran or just starting out, thanks for joining us. My guest today is production sound mixer based out of New Orleans, Louisiana. Please welcome Mark LeBlanc. Howdy. Greetings. So now, Mark, we always like to start off the show by asking, when you are working as a location sound mixer, what's in your audio kit? Um, I run two location recording kits complete. I run my what I call my studio card is based off a 788T with a CL9. I run Electrosonics Venue for my labs and a British company by the name of Micron for my booms, for uh, boom one and two. I use a, a mini Pappy from Mose Gear to run my preamps pre coming into the uh, into the Microns. It's a really quiet system. Really, really happy with that. Uh, my second cart, which I built prior to season two of Preacher, I knew we would be running around in the French Quarter. It's identical to my bigger package. It's just it's a 788T with a field venue in a small bag rig. And uh, as of today, just got back from a little love in the factory. I have a Zaxcom Max sitting next to me going in to record for the first time. And that's just a straight bag recorder that'll have probably an SR and microns uh, along with it. That's for grab and go because a lot of times in New Orleans, um, if we're shooting in the French Quarter and they see some streetcars passing, production will go, let's go, let's go steal a shot over there. And we'll just keep the main cart, whichever one it is, in the French Quarter and just run with the bag, um, hop on a streetcar and uh, knock a scene out. So that's my main my main rig. Um, microphones, my mics of choice are uh, some that a lot of people don't use. I use the AKG CK69 short shotgun mic. That's my primary mic for interiors. Um, I use the CK63 and the 61, which are hypercardioid and cardioid respectively. Exterior, I run 416s and MKH70s. So. Um, real happy with the system. They cut really well together with my primary lab, which is the DPA 4060s. Um, I also have cost 11s, B6s, and uh, and trams. Which where do they go? There we go. This might be a little better. <laughs> so that's my main rig. I'll also run a, occasionally run a backup to computer. Um, I run Reaper on my uh, my Dell tablets most of the time. So that's also sitting right next to me. Do you do any audio editing on set or is that just as a backup? That's just as a backup. Occasionally, um, what we'll do is proof of concept. When a, when a producer or director is panicked because of the noise, I run uh, RX on my computers and I'll just run it through there just as, a, you know, look, this is just me on a little stupid tablet. We'll be fine. Um, and that's nowhere near the wizardry of what these guys in post can do, which I witnessed. I had the uh, distinct pleasure of sitting in on the uh, final mix for episode 10 of Preacher at the Sony facilities in Culver City and was just blown away by what these guys can do. It was it was an extremely humbling experience, and I, and I loved every minute of it. Really, really good guys. Now, do they use the Isotope software there as well? Oh, God, yeah. Um, there are times in New Orleans that uh, it's imperative shooting on Bourbon Street with no lockups and no controls, you pray to God that Isotope can do some kind of magic. There's a, there was a scene in Preacher from this past season that we had no control over the bars. You know, it's a Friday night, nothing we can do. And yet only single line of dialogue from an entire scene was looped. And that was because she just 
one of the actresses went a little bit too low and the signal to noise ratio crashed and I could barely hear, her, but uh, Post was able to salvage everything else. So yeah, my hat's off to those guys. <laughs> yeah, well, what's it like recording in Louisiana? You have to approach your kit and how you build it differently than Los Angeles. Back when the tax credit kicked in and we started getting a lot of productions here and, and then a lot of LA guys got down here, one of the first things that they would post on, say, JW Sound would be my, what am I doing wrong? My entire kit's starting to rust. So you have to deal with a large amount of humidity all the time. So you can't just leave your equipment exposed to the elements. Two o'clock in the morning, there's so much humidity in the air. It's just, it'll get everywhere. Um, so even if it's just a simple umbrella over your cart, that will suffice. You've got to try and keep your carts as light as possible because you're dealing with mud an awful lot of the time when you're just right off of a path. It's just a part of the life down here. Wet, 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 and the occasional snake or alligator. <laughs> and when you're on the French Quarter, drunk people. Yeah, and, and lots of rain, I guess. A lot of rain. Um, rain generally doesn't stop us. It's the lightning that'll stop us. And that's a part of the, uh, the IATSE rules. We have to shut down for 30 to 40 minutes, I believe, when the, when the lightning gets within five miles from us. But when we're on stage, we're fine. Um, and that's, we love stage days. We love stage days down here. <laughs> <laughs> nice controlled environment. Nice controlled environment, yes. Well, Mark, you've worked on a lot of TV shows and feature films over the years. So let's begin with, let's talk about Preacher. It's a TV series, and you were the production sound mixer on that? Seasons two and three when it was in uh, Louisiana, yes. It started out life in New Mexico and then came here as a part of the Traveling Roadshow. So it was here for two seasons and season four to be determined where it'll be. Well, tell us a little bit about that that show and what you did and what was, say, I know every episode is probably not a typical episode. So what was the setup like? Preacher was about 50-50 stage and location. This season in particular, we spent a lot of time at... Uh, this plantation, the Edgar plantation. And the challenges there are, again, just the exteriors of Louisiana, including everyone's favorite insect, the cicadas, which my preferred time to shoot is between, say, November and late April, because the cicadas, they're basically not there. And the insect noise floor isn't there. Um, and let me... Uh, I can give you a funny story from a show I did a few years ago called Screen Queens for Fox. We shot the pilot from February into March. And then we went down and then came back to shoot the primary part of the show from June until we wrapped. And in mid-August, I get a call from Post and they're like, hey man, we've, we've got some questions for you. And one of them was in um, Jamie Lee Curtis's office, Dean Munch's office. They're like, what's this noise? we're hearing that wasn't there in the pilot. I'm like, well, welcome to Louisiana. Our neighbors who were five feet behind Jamie Lee Curtis's heads were snowbirds. So they were here in the wintertime and the air conditioners were off. And then when they left, the air conditioners won on a 15 minute timer, all eight of them. So they wouldn't take the $25 bribe fee from our locations guys, because there was literally no one there. So what they were hearing was in fact, this bank of eight air conditioners next to this beautiful house on St. Charles Avenue. So there are things like that we just, we cannot control. And, and trying to get a neighbor at four in the morning to turn their air conditioner off down here in the summertime is just, it's just not going to happen. Wow. <laughs> it's one of the things that can be a big challenge to us, um, particular here. I know there are challenges in New York and in, 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 in LA, but coming down here, it does in fact really test you because you're not only fighting your, your normal onset issues, but just the elements at times is just against you. Vertical rain or horizontal rain, excuse me, there's, there's not a tent in the world that will stop it from getting into your, into your equipment. So that and shooting next to the Mississippi River is an extreme challenge for your RF. Because if you're in the wrong place and you're in line with where the uh, the boats talk to the shore, they will absolutely kill your entire RF spectrum when these guys come into town. They're just blowing RF everywhere. And I, I did a movie in December 
we were on the other side of the levee, two feet from the Mississippi River with a big cargo boat coming in. And the antenna was about two feet from the actor at 250 milliwatts. And we were still getting a few RF pops, even though the, the channel was dead, dead open from the electro standpoint. It was just such a broadband hit that uh, that also can be a challenge. That in just space, shooting in the French Quarter and just in general in New Orleans, the the shotgun houses, those small, long shotgun houses that are prominent down in New Orleans are difficult because they're they're stacked next to each other. So you can't necessarily move your cart around the back or on the side because that's someone else's house. And uh, that's partially why I built the smaller cart that was the same features as my big cart, specifically to move in and out of these nooks and crannies that tend to happen when we're shooting in, in that part of the city. Now, on Preacher, I guess there's a lot of uh, special effects and makeup and things like that. <laughs> Is that a challenge for you? That was an especially big challenge this year for us because we had two characters in particular that were a big, big challenge for us. The first one, his character's name was Allfather. He was in a 75-pound prosthetic fat suit. And we were lucky because he sat most of the time. He played an, a grossly obese character. And my boom op and utility, Manny and Charlie, came up with a really cool rig with a tram where we were able to mount it in a part of the fat suit that just happened to have a little bit of a crinkle in it. And the lav kind of sat in that depression. And Manny came up with this little rig where he takes a, uh, a pin and bends the metal and it creates a little bit of a pocket where the tram doesn't get rubbed on. And it sounded excellent. Um, the other one was a bigger challenge. It was the Satan outfit that when we were first presented uh, two or three episodes before, we thought this wasn't going to be a big deal. And then he shows up on the day. There was literally no place we could put the lab in any normal place. So my utility, Charlie Muscani, went over to our special effects people and makeup, and we were able to put a B6 along the prosthetics chin line, cheekbone line. And uh, on my Instagram account, I have a picture of it. There's a B6 that is in the shot. 100% of the time, you just can't see it because it is so small and buried under his cheekbone. It's, it's, it's in the shot. And it was, we hid the lav, I mean, the transmitter behind his hair, um, just kind of, I forgot how they did it. They may have clipped something back there for the, uh, for the SM to sit, but those two, those two were extreme challenges. Um, our big challenge on Preacher is just a lot of low volume to high volume. You know, a lot of a lot of screaming, a lot of fighting, uh, a lot of plant mics on that show. A lot of plant mics. <laughs> now, with something like that, I did actually see the picture on your Instagram, and I can't, I couldn't see the mic. I mean, yeah. it, it, it was perfect. You cannot see it. You have to really zoom in. And if you look at where I have a little arrow pointing to, you'll oh, there it is. You'll see just a little bit of a hint of the blip of the B6. Otherwise, it's not there. But... We were fortunate. Preacher was a very sound-friendly show, and the boom carried 95% of the show. Um, the boom was there. So really, really good cooperation with our directors, with our producers, um, and with our camera department. Our biggest issue on the show was actually the Red Cameras fans. Um, oh, yeah. Just such a pain in the butt with those things. They did their best because the Reds overheating down here is just a part of life. But when it blew the take on uh, Dominic Cooper on, on a really important scene of his, they figured out two things for us that really helped. Number one is if you take a, a can of compressed air like that and you blow it into the fan of the Reds, you get about five minutes before the Red fans go into overdrive, even with all the settings proper. And then you make good friends with the caterers and they provide dry ice so that when we were exterior – and we knew that the cameras were going to get hot. They put dry ice on the top of the camera to keep it from overheating as much as possible. So we had a lot of good cooperation with it. And um, so, yeah. Wow. Air can in the vent five minutes before the fans go off. So quick yeah. action, quick sticks. Yeah, because even in with the adaptive mode setting on those fans, it you can still yeah. hear them. It, it kills it. We were... 
we were inside on stage. We were exterior. Um, just it, it became a running joke because when the fans would go into overdrive, you could literally just it would blow the take. There's nothing we could do. Everybody would just throw their hands up and we go oh, a red moment. So it's luckily I, I I haven't shot with it. We're shooting this new show on um, on a Sony camera. It's the new one, uh, and the name escapes me. But it's their new 6K camera. It looks like the F55, which I which I've shot with before, um, and it's a dead it's a it's a dead quiet camera. So I'm I'm kind of looking forward to that. Something a little bit less challenging than the red. Okay. Now you talked a little bit about you know dialogue that's quiet and loud. And do you how do you handle that usually? Do you split it up on a couple tracks? No. Um, I approached it early on in my career. I did a lot of whisper, scream, whisper, sci-fi channel movies. And the way I approached it was I bought a sound devices MM1. And that gave me a lot of confidence that when it would hit that limiter on the MM1 during the screams, that I was able to hold the same gain level on it so that if it was a whisper, I wouldn't have a lot of hiss. So. The MM1 is amazing for a lot of guys that do the whisper screen whisper routine. It was just better than any of the preamps on any of the wireless systems that I was using at the time. And I tried a bunch of different ones. Um, just nothing could compare to how that sounded. And then uh, I think about halfway through Preacher, we cut over to the Pappy, the mini Pappy from Mo's Gear. Much, much smaller. Really nice sound. It sounded like it had a little bit tighter bass end and a nice little crisp midsection. And uh, looking forward to putting it through its paces on on this upcoming show. So, well, I see you also worked on Logan. You did a second unit sound yep. in that. Tell us a little bit about that project. Uh, Logan was fun. My friend and mentor, Mr. Paul Ledford, asked me to come do second unit and basically cleaned up all of the action here in Louisiana as much as possible. So his unit would handle all the dialogue and as much of the stunts as possible and handed off all the main second unit stunt stuff to, uh, to my unit. Things like fights. Uh, there was a few car chases we were involved with. I never recorded any dialogue, nothing but sound effects, but it was still, it was still good fun. Um, I was shocked the day that we had a motorcycle chase scene or they were using a motorcycle as a camera platform and it was electric and I've never seen something move as fast as that motorcycle when it took off from base camp to head to head to the shot. It was, it was dead quiet and it was amazingly fast. And I, um, I think in 50 years when all cars are electric, the production sound mixers then won't know what our struggle is when a set of Harley Davidsons come down the street. They will have no idea what life was like for us. <laughs> but Logan, Logan was good fun. Stunt units are always fun. It's um, I call second unit, uh, same great pay, but half the calories. So that's, that's, that's good fun. I've enjoyed it. I've did a. I've done second unit with Mr. Ledford a few times. Fantastic Four and Logan being the most outstanding. Okay, and I see also you did a GI Joe Retaliation. I did a few pickup days on that. They came back and reshot a few scenes, um, and I was able to hop on first unit on that. So that was my first real taste of um, of what a big show felt like. It was that was a lot of fun seeing the Rock standing next to your cart is pretty fun. It's, it's, you get a kick out of that. So any uh, fun experiences at that time, a story you could tell about being on set there? Um, not so much. We were, because it was pickup days, we were in a rush. It there was no sitting around. We did two 16 hour days and we were shooting practically the entire time. So there wasn't a lot of uh, there wasn't a lot of time for good stories. There was just a lot of time of getting a mic on, getting the boom out there, because they had everything storyboarded. They had a shot list checklist. They were just going straight down the line. We did uh, the first day we were at one main location. The second day we hopped around three or four different locations. So there wasn't there wasn't a lot of time to get a lot of happy stories. Um, 
Yeah, but it was it was it was fun to be on that show because at at that point in my career, I had been doing mostly Sci-Fi Channel and small budget shows. Okay. Now, with something like that that has a lot of action, a lot of movement going on, do you have any like tips on miking people up with lav mics? Butyl. Butyl is your friend, especially like if you watch the GI Joe. There's a lot of uh, padding around, a lot of military padding, and usually in this area, there's some type of Velcro that you can put, say, a Cos 11 or a B6 in there. And the Velcro will pretty much keep it in place if you put the little loop in there. But if you put butyl around the lav and just kind of smash it in there, you, you'll get no, no issues with rustling. It's, it was perfect. It's similar to the idea of taking a pen and hollowing out the end of the pin and putting it in a, in a cop right there. It's just, you're giving the lav as much air as possible. I did a cop show a few weeks ago and we hid, we hid um, a 4060 behind the, the uh, officer's nameplate. The, the badge was actually too floppy because of how they had the, the clip was causing it to go side to side but the name badge was going up and down and we were able to put it there with a little hole cut in the shirt and it kind of stabilized it with a piece of butyl on one side of the 4060 to attach it to the nameplate and another piece of butyl on the person that we could smash it onto and it just, it never made a sound other than uh, other than the dialogue it was pretty good it was it was it was good there was a lot of screaming going on um, a lot of gunshot fire so we kind of gained down the transmitters a little bit for that. But otherwise, yeah, it worked perfect. It was, it was very happy with that rig. Oh, nice. Now, you also did uh, Fantastic Four, one of the, uh, re I guess that's a remake, and you were a sound yeah. mixer on that? Yeah, that, um, that was a few years back. That was shot in Baton Rouge. Um, again, I did a lot of the second unit stunt work, but I was able to work with first unit helping out on the all the IFB helmet rigs that they had. Every time they would come off of the stage, there were four or five primary actors who wanted nothing more than to pull all that gear off. And here was the sound department trying to get to them because the helmet, when it came off, had wires that had to be unplugged. So that was, um, that was a complete nightmare, trying to run those people down to make sure they didn't just pull everything off, which had IFBs in their ear and uh, lavaliers. And what Paul did was he had a mix minus rig so that one actor would not hear his own voice, but he would hear everyone else's voice. So that there was no feedback. It worked really well, but that was a lot of work to just keep everything running properly. That was, uh, again, I didn't do the run of the show, but it was, it was a lot of fun the days I was there. A lot of fun. Okay. You mentioned IFB, you know, from time to time, some of our listeners will send in a question and I'll see, I have a question here from a listener, Estevan Rodriguez, and he asked how to use an IFB on set and what is a typical setup? I use the Shure PSM 900 as my primary IFBs for my boom ops. I take an individual feed from my 788T so that they can each hear their own boom. But in addition, uh, one of the really cool features of the PSM 900 is you can set the receiver to a mono mode and you can set what side of the left channel and the right channel you wanna hear and you can dial that in. So my primary boom up will be 90% him and 10% boom two so that they can talk to each other but that he's not primarily hearing what her boom is giving us. So it's a really, really nice setup. And I have two of those systems on each of my carts. For the Video Village, I use uh, Comtex, just the standard Comtex. Um, I use the portable transmitter on my small cart and the BST transmitter on my, on my larger carts. And they work fine. Again, it's, it's what you can afford. Um, and as long as the directors can hear the dialogue, the quality of the sound is A, it's up to you, and B, how good your post-production services are. If you have any questions about that, any concerns, you bring it up to the director and tell them, look, this might be an issue. I'm going to make 
a note in my report, um, but please know that there may be issues with this in post. We can get a wild line if you want, or we can just get a reference track. It's completely up to you. We're here to serve the picture. We're going to do the best we can, but some days you're literally nothing we can do. So it's a lot about range. I don't like to be generally anywhere near Video Village. Uh, there's too much talking these days next to in the village. So if we're on stage, uh, a good stage day for me is when you can't find me. I find a nice nook and cranny at second line stages and uh, you can't find where the sound guy is. Uh, one thing about my rig that is different than a lot of guys is I run wireless video uh, to my cart so I can be anywhere. I can be 100 yards from Video Village, but only two feet away from set on stage and I still get signal. I don't need a high def signal. I just need to see who's talking. That's that's my main issue is just whoever's talking, I'm good to go. Any other questions about the IFB, I, I'll be happy to happy to answer but it's basic it's the mix track for video village um boom op gets his track uh boom op 2 gets her track and then on the cl9 i don't know any sound devices users out there i use the right and the x2 controllers on the surface to blend in the lavaliers if they want to hear them so normally the boom ops don't hear the labs but if they request that i can i can adjust the gain up to send it to them if they want to hear it sometimes when it's especially a wide shot and we're on a long shotgun on a scene, he wants to hear what the boom up, what the, what the lavaliers are giving us. Um, but in a majority of the time, Manny just likes to hear what the boom, what the boom's giving him. Okay. Uh, also I have another listener here. His name is uh, Mark Landry and he sent in a question and wanted to know, would you ever stop a take to adjust the mic for clothing, Russell, or would you, when is the proper time to do that? We will generally do it between takes. I don't like to interrupt an actor because while we are here to record the dialogue as best as possible, we're also here in support of a performance. And if, if it's a scene that we're carrying it on the boom and the lavaliers are rustling, I'll let my utility know to catch it on the next take. But if we are completely screwed on anything, I will definitely make sure to get another take. Um, I will never stop a performance because it could be the performance that wins that person an Oscar. And if it's an ADR situation, it is an ADR situation. Um, I don't fear the word ADR as much as I did when I was uh, starting out. It's just a part of, it's a part of the process. I had an entire character's performance ADR'd in a movie for no other reason than someone at the network didn't like his voice. Wow. But because on the day the director loved the overlaps, they ended up having DADR, the entire group of military guys that this movie was based with. Luckily they weren't a big part of the movie, but still the ramification of one person at the network going, Oh, I don't like the way this guy, this guy's voice sounds. It's too New Yorky. You know, he's too much New York. Let's make him less New York. Now we had to drag five other people in for a particular scene because he was barking out orders while they were grumbling about it. So, but you make a note, you talk to the director and you get, uh, you get as much help from production as possible. So I never bust a take unless, you know, if the boom goes down, I will tell the boom up, we've got problems. Um, but in general, I, I try not to, interrupt our actors especially on preacher this season there were a lot of intense scenes and uh you just you just let it go you you got to let them get their performance out and and ask for another take because there's rare time that an actor will say no to another take a producer might and a director might but i've really never met an actor that say no i'm totally fine let's move on <laughs> That's good. Yeah. You know, and I, I look at it too, you know, a lot of times those scenes are cut together with multiple takes. And even though the bat, the ending of the take was bad, the first part is still good. And yes. so there's parts and pieces that they can put together. So. Yes. Agreed. Agreed. And speaking of ADR, uh, years ago, I worked on a commercial and at the end that, yeah, the client didn't like the voice of the actress. 
And so we actually had another voiceover come in and we replaced her whole voice. I felt so bad for her and it looked good and they were, they were really happy with it. And, uh, but I was just like, wow, I'd never had that before. So, um, now I do hardline a lot more than, um, a lot of my contemporaries in the area. We learned that on Scream Queens, especially on the pilot, when Ryan Murphy was directing, there was a scene where all eight of our Kappa pledges and, and sorority members come running into a scene, scream their heads off, and then deliver dialogue. And what we did for something like that is we took a stereo bar, just a little stereo bar I got off of eBay somewhere so many years ago. It was just literally sitting in my kit. We hardlined an SM57, and then our normal shotgun mic was at its normal volume. And when the girls came in, fader down on the boom, bring up the 57, they screamed their lungs off. It didn't clip, brought it down, brought the boom back up for, for the dialogue. And um, just a quick little note to post. And that's if you, if you happen to know Scream Queens and watch that particular scene, the scene starts off with an SM57 and cuts over to the boom. And we did that a, an awful lot on that show, especially there was another scene in the pilot where Niecy Nash is in a car screaming her lungs out. And that was probably the lowest setting I've ever had on my 788T, a 57 hard lined into the mic level. And I was at 15 and I was still running at about minus 20 when she screamed the dialogue out. Wow. So, uh, yeah, I'll still hardline an awful lot when it's when it's something that loud. You, it doesn't matter how good my preamps are; um, it just couldn't take it. Which I would love to be able to test the uh, the never clip um, on a Zaxcom. I haven't tested that yet. Looking forward to it. All right. So uh, you also worked on American Made with Tom Cruise, and that was in Louisiana as well, or some scenes. Yes, sir. He they did um, they did a few weeks of shooting here. Primarily, they shot, it was either in Florida or in, and definitely down in South America. And we did, uh, we did a week with Mr. Cruz down here. It was about the same time he did the second um, Jack Reacher show. So he, he did a day where he split with us and we were shooting other actors and then we had him for a few days. And that's an intense experience working with Tom Cruise. That was you take your you take your A game and you add some to it because the man comes to set ready to work. It was probably one of the best experiences of watching someone professional ready to come to set. He was in he was in his wardrobe. He walked on set and wanted to be shooting. And that was that was a real eye opener. A lot of times actors get on set and there's a lot of chit chatting and things, but when Mr. Cruz landed on set, it was, it was all business. It was a very refreshing experience. Kept me, kept me on my toes. That's for sure. Yeah, I could imagine. All right. I got one last question here from yep. a listener. Uh, his name is John Bradley and he's run into some situations lately where he is recording audio for multiple cameras at the same time, but they're not filming. They're filming two different scenes. And oh. And he said, they've got audio and camera have matching time code. And he said, but they're not covering the same subjects. And he said, he didn't know what to do with the mix. And he said, I guess they were just going to use the ISO tracks. But have you ever had anything like that before? Two weeks ago, I had that exact situation. We were shooting a robbery in a store. And for whatever reason, the director parked two cameras in the middle of the store, pointed them in opposite directions. And... The budget was such that they wouldn't allow me to run double boom. So what I did was picked what I thought was the most important side of the scene. And that's where I sent the boom. And then the lavaliers covered the other side and just gave a note to post going, A camera is pointing in this direction and the boom is over there. B camera is pointing in that direction. It's all lavaliers. Good luck. Have fun with that. There's, there's, there's nothing you can do. I guess what you could potentially do is run a stereo mix and then pan. If you had a recorder that was able to pan in real time, you could do, you know, your boom and all your left channel talent on one side. And if you don't have a boom on the, on the right channel, just all of the lab channels going into that mix channel and then listen to it 
in your headphones so that you could hear both sides happening at once. And then just make a note to post that um, one side is over here. It's carrying a camera. This mix track is handling everything on this side. This season of Preacher, we did do something interesting that they wanted to shoot both sides of a conversation at the same time on two separate stages. And we were able to accomplish that. I had my main rig was with me on stage one with my normal boom up Manny. And I had Charlie with my second rig run to the other stage with just a cable running back and forth between the two stages. And then out of the shore system, the PSM 900 has outputs that echo what come into it. So you have the left and right coming in and it has a left and right going out. So what I did was inverted them and sent them to speakers on either stage so that when fader one from stage one was up, the speaker on stage two could hear what was happening. And conversely, when fader two was up, it heard on stage one so that the actors, they couldn't see each other, but they could hear each other. And if you watch the scene as it's played out in the edit, it's amazing because they're actually talking to each other and not to an AD. But in the dailies, this was funny as hell. They didn't do any of that separation of the mixed channels, the left and the right. So when you hear it, you're hearing someone's dialogue and then you hear the other, other actor burping or hiccuping or breathing. So watching the dailies was very, very entertaining. Watching the scene was really good because of the interaction between the actors. And it was, that was a fun day. That was a really, really fun day. That's interesting. I haven't heard that before. That's great. Yep. It was right at the edge of my 100-foot cable, so I was very happy they didn't pick the wrong set because <laughs> that would have been a little bit out of range for us. Out of all the projects you've worked on over the years, what's what's been your favorite? There have been a few. Preacher was fun. Preacher was enjoyable to work on. I really liked Scream Queens. Scream Queens was fun because it was – it was a new show. The cast was amazing. The main Kappa set was a $5 million build. And that in and of itself was a lot of fun, but it was a, it was a huge challenge. I also enjoyed my time um, on American Horror Story, uh, the fourth season that was down here. I did the double up units, which we ended up doing almost 40 days of full full unit work where my unit would start the first 10 scenes of an episode the main unit, who was mixed by Mr. Bruce Latecki, really loved that guy. He gave me my shot on that show. And then my unit would come in at the end of the episode and clean up the back end. And that was, that was an experience of times where his unit would shoot the master and one person's coverage. And then we would come in two weeks later and shoot the other side of the coverage. And you're talking about at the time, Bruce was running a, a Kantar X2. So he was running a Kantar X2 with, a, with the CMIT and Sheps mics. I'm running 788T with AKG mics, and they're cutting the scene between these two microphones. That's how good post is. You could, you could watch the scene, and, and you couldn't tell. Um, but working for, working for Ryan Murphy in and of itself is um, – he hates ADR, and – his was the first show that everyone in the production knew you are not going to do wide and tights. That just ain't happening. The boom's going to be in there and you're going to get your coverage. Now we would start with a 16 mil and a 20 mil on the two cameras, but then we would start marching in for coverage until we got to the, the normal coverage. And the first day Ryan showed up on our set, instead of looking at how beautiful it was, his words were, uh, Am I screwed for sound because of how poor the acoustics were in that set? So it's a lot of fun working for him. A lot of fun. But you bring your A game, but you also know that the AD staff has your back and that the camera guys know that uh, wides and tights just aren't, aren't going to happen, at least the shows we worked with him on. So that was, that was the first time I really felt that production had our backs that we weren't just going to be hung out to dry, which was, which was a relief because the show I did two weeks before that was all wides and tights. And it was just misery, you know, <laughs> just misery. So I, I, I just hate that. And they're shooting wides and tights at the same time, basically, right? Yeah. Just, you know, you stick a hundred mil on someone's close up here and then you put a 35 mil 
catching the wide and the boom can't be in the shot. So it's, it's all lavaliers and I'll mention it to the directors and I go, I hope you like your uh, movie to sound like a reality TV show because that's what you're going to get. They're like, don't you have lavaliers? I'm like, yeah, I do, but they don't sound as good as my booms. You know, sometimes it's good to just run one camera. Sometimes, yeah, three or four cameras. We, I worked on a, on a police show for a few days that had five cameras running. It was all lavaliers, two on sticks, a steady cam. And then some GoPros. I think the boom was in Texas for a few of those shots. <laughs> so that was a, that was a complete lab show. So you just that's where you you grab your bag, you find a nice corner somewhere, and uh, collect a paycheck. Just make sure your ISO tracks are fine because the boom's not getting anywhere near that scene at all. <laughs> now uh, we always have to ask, what was your worst onset experience? You don't have to use any names. Oof. It's, it, it's a combination of worst and scariest, if that's okay. Okay, sure. We're shooting a movie in 3D in the middle of summer at Angola Prison. It's a maximum security federal prison here in the state of Louisiana. Now, one thing that differentiates Angola from every other prison in America, it's not a classic Shawshank Redemption. You don't drive up and there's a prison. It's 18 square miles of a prison with camps individual camps spread out all over and each of the designated camps are for different types of prisoners we happen to be shooting in the camp that was the designated area that if you get kicked out of this prison and you go to a different camp you're in lockdown you're in maximum solitary confinement so we were with a group of really not the most savory of prisoners and we're moving from one set to the next when an alarm goes off. The guards immediately lurch into action and they shove all of us into a locked down church area. So there's a little bit of a fence area and we are literally locked in the church as you hear all of this yelling and rustling going on outside of us. And when you're inside of the prison in Angola, when those two gates close behind you, you feel it. it. It's it's an intense, like you're trapped. But now we're also trapped inside of an area that was 30 feet, which, which the guards love to tell the story. Uh, the last time there was a big riot at Angola prison, someone was killed in a library that was about 30 feet to our right. So that day was was not only scary, but the first time I really felt kind of endangered. Mm. So that was not, that's not one of our top days on set. I can say that was definitely not one of my top days on set. A few other times shooting on a boat. We're coming back from, from shooting and the boat I was on was towing another boat in the Atchafalaya Basin. We come around a corner and we encounter a water spigot, uh, basically a tornado on the water coming right at us. But the boat we're pulling with our talent on it has no working motor. And we're barely chugging along and this stupid thing's coming at us. Um, there was a lot of yelling in that, uh, yelling and screaming to get out. Uh, luckily, it dissipated. Um, but that was just another time of like, oh, my God, <laughs> what am I doing? <laughs> you know, so a lot of that, a lot of that kind of stuff. You know, equipment failure. I've had my, my equipment go down right in the middle of the take. And instead of lying or trying to come up with an excuse, you, you literally man up and go, I had an equipment failure. You know, the Reds do it all the time. They give out. So if something like that happens to you in the middle of a take, just be, be honest and tell them we need another one. I had an equipment issue. Just mud and gear, mud and gear just don't go along. I did a movie called Hatchet 3 a few years ago. I came back from lunch. And usually I had my, my CL9 covered. We start to do the scene and my finger got burned when I touched the knob for the boom channel. And at first I, I didn't know what was going on. I thought maybe I had a ground loop and I touched it again. And sure enough, my finger burned and my lights on the CL9 started to blink. So I'm like, you know, I keep a CL8 attached to my 788 for this very thing. I unplugged it, connected it back up. No problem. I'll finish the day with this. I called sound devices the next day. They sent me a replacement unit while mine was in for repair. A few days later, I get a call from them. They are laughing their heads off 
apparently a bug crawled into the fader space of, of fader one. And when I brought the fader up, it was a stink bug and it died. It, it crushed and his guts got onto the electronics and it caused a little bit of short <laughs> right where the gain knob is. So it was a short that was causing it to overheat. So they, they laughed so hard. They didn't charge me for it. And it was literally just, uh, I think they changed the knob and, and sprayed it off and that was it. So a bug burned my finger and nearly cost my CL nine's life. Oh my God. So it's little stuff like that with insects that, uh, you know, it'll, it'll cause you a little bit of stress. Oh my gosh. Now, have you ever forgotten any equipment on your way to set? Probably the worst thing would be a sink box. That would be the worst. Uh, I've never, or batteries. I charge my batteries at home. I don't trust charging them on my trailer at night. The roads in new Orleans are too bad for that. <laughs> you know, just, <clears throat> and I have forgotten a few, uh, but I do keep enough backups on my trailer that uh, I was, we were able to get through the day. Thankfully, we didn't have a lot of people in Video Village, so I didn't have to dive into my 9-volt uh, backups. So, yeah, batteries are probably the worst and, and maybe a sink box or two. Okay. But never left home and turned around and went, wow, I guess I lost my 788 somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> now, I have had, it was early in my career, I get a call from production and they're going, hey, do you have the last day's recordings and i'm like what yeah we we lost your stuff they completely lost all of my files from the last day of shooting just because and i said yes i do because i keep a backup of everything so even though production's not paying you for it it does pay to to back up your data which in an episodic world i back up every eight days so eight days usually is our episode run. Um, so every day, every eight days, I, I turn over a backup on my recorders. All right. Now, uh, what, do you, what have you found is the biggest mistake for audio newbies when they first start working on set? A few things. Setting your proper gain staging, number one. Any of the microphones that are on the market, the majors, your Sennheisers, your AKGs, your Sheps, your Neumanns, they're going to give you good sound. So your decision on what microphone you want to buy, it really has everything to do, in my opinion, on how good the signal-to-noise ratio is. My AKGs, one of the reasons I love them, their self-noise is only minus nine. So that's five or six dBs better than every other microphone on the market. And it took me a while to figure out what's the gain level I'm going to run into my transmitter and what's the gain level i'm going to run on my 788t uh if you've got those backwards where you're really hot on the on the gain on the transmitter and really low on the 788 you're going to run into problems of hitting the limiter on on whatever plugin you're using and if you're in the opposite direction where you're turning up a lot of gain on your recorder and you have a lot of gain down on your transmitter you're going to introduce um, an amount of hiss that necessarily is not needed but a lot of times if 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 you're starting out find a mixer with some experience and just ask him questions ask him to come over any of the young mixers in the new orleans area i'm friends with as many people as as text me you know don't be afraid so gain structure knowing your metadata find something that works for you and find something that works with post for instance um my background, I, I come from a software development environment. In the 90s, I lived in Palo Alto, California, worked for a company called Opcode Systems. We made software that predated Pro Tools. It was called Studio Vision. We also had some incredible MIDI interfaces. So I've seen what it's like down at the ones and zero level. So by doing that, it gave me a leg up knowing what I could and couldn't do going into an analog digital converter. So I felt that when, when, when I got onto set, I'd been in studios since 1983, that I took what I had learned in all of those years and brought it onto set as much as possible. But on my very first day on set, I asked the uh, first AD for room tone and she tells me to go F myself. Oh my and gosh. that was, 
that was when I knew that sound was uh, definitely second fiddle on sets. <laughs> when, when your first day ever on any set, that's my first encounter with an AD was to tell me to go F myself. Wow. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, and just get your metadata down. Make sure there's a clean line of communication with post. Even if it's a, if it's a tier one show and post is not on board yet, make sure the assistant editor knows. If you've done a wild track, for instance, email them because they may not necessarily read your notes. But if you email them to tell them, hey, scene 16, we picked up some wild tracks. Could you, could you look at that? Because otherwise they're in a rush, you're in a rush, and your, your sound notes may fall through the cracks. So just document everything, find out who is your contacts in post, and just make sure everyone above you knows. And don't be afraid to a man up to one of your mistakes, but also if there's a refrigerator in a bar, just be friends with your location guys. What I have found is if you go at the brute force method of you've got to turn this off for sound, you are going to put everyone on a defensive and they won't help you. But if you go to them and say, Hey man, it would be really great. Could you help me turn this off? I need to find this. And if you put it to them as a, as a question, they'll be more than likely to help you. Here's a great example. We were shooting in a bar that down here, there's uh, gambling machines in certain bars that you can't turn off. But we found out that if you turn off, say, a blackjack machine, that the state troopers will wait two hours before they show up on set because that's a that could be a tip-off that the machine's getting stolen or someone's tried to break into it. So there's like a two-hour delay, which meant I gave them the master. We'll have the machines on in the master. But when we plunged into coverage on Dominic Cooper, we unplugged the machines and plowed through it. And when the cameras were set up, we plugged it back in, which reset the clock another two hours. And then we got uh, we got the other person's coverage. So it, the master sounded horrible and the coverage sounded great. Uh, good, <laughs> so good idea. Become friends with, uh, with your folks in, in locations. Of all of the departments on set that will help you the most long-term is your locations guys. They will let you know what problems a set will have. And... You know, over time as your career builds, there'll be a lot of locations you see 10, 15 times a year or in an, on an episodic, you'll see it through just the, just the show and your locations, guys, very good friends to have, very good friends to have. And down here, I bring some smoked boudin from the best stop. It's a little place in Scott, Louisiana, and that I guarantee you will get, get your locations and your transpo friends on your side. <laughs> a little boudin doesn't hurt. Okay. So uh, how has the business changed uh, since you started? Oh, wow. Less experienced directors. That's been the biggest issue that I've, I've seen. Directors that, I, from what I can see, have never been on set. Or they did one or two shorts, and then they're given an opportunity. And they don't realize the gift that they've been given. And they'll blow 15 takes on a master of a car driving up with no dialogue, just two cars, just a car driving up, them getting out, walking off frame. So that's a five minute scene with a 15 minute reset. So we've just wasted four hours for two actors to walk into a scene with seven pages of dialogue to cover. And they waste their time on these masters and when I first started, it was still film. And what I miss most about film was the sense that money was being spent, that what we were doing meant something because you were, you were spending money when that little thing was, you know, was whirling. And when digital hit, one of the things that changed that I really hate is the stupid reset to go to ones. Reset, go to one. Reset, go to one. And when the boom is 18 feet out on an MKH 70, it's going to dip into frame when you reset going to one on a seven minute scene four times. Sorry, film that just didn't happen. Quick action, quick sticks. Boom, cut. That's the other thing. Nobody else cut anymore. 
It's like this nebulous thing, like, ah, did we cut? I don't know. Oh, well, the red button's still on, A camera's still rolling, and B camera's not. So it's almost the, the, the protocol on set for me has changed because people think it's digital. You've got all the time in the world and you're not spending any money. But what you are doing is you're hurting your project because this is what sells most movies. It's the action here. Imagine the moment in The Godfather when Michael Corleone turns to the dark side, we'll say, and he's like, and I'll kill them both when the camera does that slow push in. Imagine if that was on a wide. Like it wouldn't have had the impact. The impact is here. This is why you're paying the actors. The wides, that's the stunt guys and the and the doubles. You know, just a car drives up two times. Let's go into the seven pages of dialogue, guys. Let's 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 knock that out. So those have been the the biggest changes. Equipment equipment wise, not too much changes. Just uh, still some UPMs think that I'm still running a nagger with a boom, and that's it. Because they still want me to, they'll occasionally ask me, can I put all my equipment on the the camera truck? And I'll send them a picture of my 16-foot trailer and go, you can figure out a way to get all this into their trailer with all their gear. I tip my hat to you. That ain't happening. Just the protocol on set for me has changed has changed the most. That's the That's been the biggest thing. Otherwise, um, you know, moving up in the ranks, uh, I, I'm enjoying... I, I really enjoy myself on episodic. Uh, I love the pace. I love the hectic nature of it. And uh, if you don't like your director, you get a new one in eight days. So that's also a pro. <laughs> but most of the directors on TV, they're, they're seasoned guys and gals. And uh, they know what they need. They know how to get in and out of acts. Uh, they know how to get in and out of commercials. And there's not a lot of uh, wiggle room. As, as much as, say, an, an indie feature with a first-time director who the first time they see the monitor, that very first day, I call it picture fever because they'll be in the interview and they'll go, you know, we really want great sound. Yeah, we're going to do our best. Okay, great. Day one, they see the master shot and they go, oh, and they proceed to do 16 to 20 takes because they watch some YouTube clip of David Fincher doing 66 takes and they think that's what's going to make him a good director. So <laughs> that's... that's uh, that's the biggest change I've seen. Now, if some of our listeners wanted to get into location sound, what would you recommend they do? Uh, depends on where you are. If you've got a store, like a central location that a lot of the other mixers are going to go. Here in New Orleans, it's a, a, a company called SoundHard. And if you want to get in the business, your first thing should be to go introduce yourself there. Because... That's like a central depot of all of the mixers in New Orleans. And in LA, it could be Location Sound or True. And in New York, it could be Gotham. Go to the stores, introduce yourselves to them. And you may be lucky and a mixer might be coming in to pick up expendables or repair or something. And you can introduce yourself. But be fearless. Don't be afraid to find out mixers' emails. A lot of us have web pages. Find an email there. Send us a text. Invite us to coffee. We're always looking for good talent because your boom ops and utilities, they eventually want to become mixers, many of them. So if you're in the right place at the right time, you might get an opportunity. I might be able to help a mixer by giving them second unit days. That's how I got my break. I'm forever grateful that Bruce gave me my shot on American Horror Story. And that that gave me my opportunity on Screen Queens, a direct, I, I impressed some people at Fox and four weeks after Horror Story wrapped, I had Screen Queens. So just networking. Um, and in, in most cases, if you, if you know no one, find out where the mixers go to buy their gear and just introduce yourself there. Hang out, learn how to wrap cable, learn how to solder. These are all skills that'll definitely help you on set at any time. Uh, check out things like JW Sounds Forum really good repository for good information. And now Facebook has a bunch of groups that are, are good. And if you come from a music background, that's, that's, that's even better because at least you know what a microphone is. You may not know what a lab is. You may not know what frequency interference is, but you're going to have at least some of the basic terminologies. Uh, the biggest difference is you're going to rapidly realize you are not the central focus like you were in a studio. You know, sound is good, but Say on Preacher, we had 150 people on set any given day, and there are only three of us that worry about the other 50% of the movie. 
So get a really thick skin and you have to do that really fast. Otherwise it'll run you out of the business. It'll drive you nuts on those days where there's, there's nothing you can do shooting next to interstate 10 near the Superdome. There's nothing I can do. I can complain about the location. I can rant in my sound notes, which I do often, but you've got to really learn how to get a thick, thick skin to stay in the business and move up. Don't be afraid. Even if you find my email, email me. I have no problems. I taught at a university for eight years before I got into this. I love, I love helping people as much as I can. Might be a little slow on response on some days if we're out in the swamp with no cell reception, but I'll try and get back in touch with anyone as much as I can. So as we kind of start to wrap things up, uh, do you have any final words of wisdom to share with uh, listeners out there? We live in an amazing time with a lot of amazing equipment out there. Don't be afraid to buy used equipment to start out with. There's a lot of really good value there. My Max that I bought was used. It's my first foray into Zaxcom world. I've been a sound devices user for over a decade now. Don't be afraid to do shorts and student films. It's where you are going to make your mistakes and hopefully not penalize you in terms of getting jobs. You're going to need to learn what microphones you like. I can tell you what microphone I use in a given situation, but that mic may be absolutely horrible in another situation. I did an Oscar-nominated movie early in my career called Beast of the Southern Wild. 90% of that movie was recorded with a drum microphone from Earthworks. And the reason was the lead actress, Nacy, screamed so loud that it clipped every one of the mics I had in my kit at the time, except this mic from Earthworks. It was one of the most natural sounding microphones I've ever heard. And it's crazy. It's got better rear rejection than any of the microphones that are built for rear rejection. So I will use it on occasion when there is an awful lot of reflections, like horrible echo. I'll trot that mic out and it'll sound better than anything I have in my kit. So don't be afraid to experiment, especially on shorts, uh, student films. Use that as your testing ground for what you like. And also find a set of headphones that work for you. These headphones, let's see, these are from KRK. These headphones saved my career. And I don't say that lightly. These, I started out like everyone else with the, the standard Sonys. And I would get ear fatigue over the course of the day because one of the things the Sony does is hype up the nine, eight, nine kilohertz range. So you can really hear the dialogue, but it burned my ears out and I would start to get a little bit of tinnitus. And I happened to stumble on these KRKs because they have a very, very flat response. And I was able to hear better what the microphones were giving me that were matching what I'm hearing in my home studio. So it allowed me to change a microphone selection that if I'd have had the Sonys, for instance, I, I hated the 416. I hated the 416 with a passion when I was running the Sonys because they sounded brittle to my ears. But when I got the KRKs, I noticed that brittleness was gone. And then I would listen to the, the result of the 416. It thing sounded amazing. Now I've got two 416s and a, and a MKH-70 because what I was hearing with the hyped up headphones wasn't what they were hearing in post-production on their monitors. So choose your headphones wisely because they are going to cause you to make microphone decisions that you might not understand what the ramifications are down the line. I'm not saying the Sonys aren't a bad headphone. They're great. It's just for me coming from studio, the, these headphones really allowed me to a control my ear fatigue during the course of a day. And the fact that they started to sound more like what my studio sounded like was a revelation to me. It was, it was a really big deal for me and changed it changed the way I mixed because I was making microphone choices based off of what I was hearing in my headphones. So choose these guys wisely. Try, try as many brands out as possible. Listen to it and then listen to them on speakers if you can and see what the difference is. Yeah, this is probably one of the least talked about things is just this is our interface to the world. 
you're you're the only person on set who actually hears what these recorders are giving us. It doesn't matter if you're running a, a digital IFB or Comtex, their signal will not be as good as what we hear and interface with these guys. So this is this is as important as your microphone choice, in my opinion. So uh, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? I'm at soundspeeds14 at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, shoot me an email. I'm on Facebook also, if you want to uh, friend me on Facebook. Yeah, just uh, drop me an email. I, have, I, I love talking to people. Oh, that's great. Well, Mark, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk pleasure. with us today. And um, I just want to say thanks to Mark LeBlanc for being on the show today. And if you're in the Louisiana area, reach out and get in touch. Come on down to New Orleans. You'll pass yourself a good time, Sha. And don't, <laughs> don't worry, you'll put on a couple pounds while you're down here. <laughs> and a big thanks to all of our listeners out there. If you'd like us to discuss a particular topic, please send us an email at locationsoundpodcast at gmail.com. We would love for you to subscribe and leave us a comment. We're available on Apple Podcasts, and for Android users, check out Google Podcasts. Also, we're on Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, and on your favorite podcast app. Until next time, remember, sound is half the picture.